Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 124. It's July 11th, 2015. I'm your host, John Pagliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at InvestableWealth.com. In this episode, we're going to hone in and discuss three topics. I'll briefly provide you with a market review, then we'll touch lightly on Greece, and then the main emphasis of this episode will be talking about China and specifically about what I'm calling China's three strikes. Three strikes as in baseball. So let's get started with the market and specifically talking about the S&P 500. Over the last two trading sessions, with better news coming out of both China and Greece, no surprise, we've seen the indexes rise. However, despite the fact that we're halfway through July and, and more than halfway through the year, and with all the drama and all the trading range that the market has been bouncing up and down on, as of the close on Friday, we found the S&P up something like, I don't know, 80, 90 basis points for the year. So if you're a buyer and a holder and you've been sitting in this market, uh, this very turbulent market for the last six and a half months, you've been rewarded with less than a 1% gain. This has been a really uh, white knuckle experience and a lot of uncertainty to just pay yourself back with as little as 1%. Personally, that's why I've tried to remain mostly in cash this year. Other than moving in and out when I saw specific opportunities, I continue to have the bulk of my portfolio invested in the U.S. dollar. I won't get into that right now. Probably in the next few days, I will put a blog post up over at investablewealth.com addressing that very issue, specifically saying why I still like the dollar. If you're interested in something like that, be sure you sign up for the free email notices. Whenever I put up a blog post, that full article will go out to your email address. And even though we've seen the market have a nice bounce up these last two days, I remain very cautious because I do believe that it's likely that this market, because of its personality, how it only goes down 3 or 4 or 5% and then bounces right back up, I do believe there's you know better than a 50 or maybe a 60% chance that going into this next week, if we get good news out of, again, China and Greece, you will see this market go ahead and bounce back up to its, its trading zone. Basically, all this year, we've been bouncing around somewhere between 2040, 2050 on the downside, and then we can't ever get much above 2130, somewhere in that range. So it's been very tight. And again, it wouldn't surprise me at all if we do get that bounce again this week. However, I am choosing not to participate in it because I still think, at this point anyways, things could always change after you know the market opens on Monday. But right now, I still see us with a significant downside. I've talked about it before. I'm not going to go into all the elaboration in this episode, but I'll quickly touch on some of the high points. The market continues to trade at, at a pretty high premium. It's not that it's necessarily extremely overpriced, but even with this latest adjustment, we're still seeing something in the order of uh, 16 and a half times forward earnings. That isn't outrageously expensive. But when you look at the future growth opportunities, in my estimations, I would say that the market is still richly priced. I would feel much more comfortable if it was something more like a 15 times earnings. And with the current earning outlook for this year, which is likely to be about 6 7% on top of where it closed at the end of December in 2014. So to hit about a 15 times forward earnings, that would put the S&P in a range of about 1880, 1885. Uh, right now, we're sitting at like 2076. So we're still about 10% above where I would feel very comfortable buying into the market. Now, again, my opinion can always change. Maybe if it dropped another 2 or 3 or 4%, I might think that would be a good opportunity and get in. But right now, for where I stand, if I wanted to really feel good about this market, that's the kind of price that I would like to see. 
And again, I base this on the fact that although there are good solid earnings, as I just mentioned, we're looking at probably 6 to 7% year-over-year earnings growth. Those are solid earnings. That means we're not going to have an economic collapse or recession. But at the same time, it's nothing to be exuberant about, nor is it anything to be paying high premiums for. And although we're six or seven years into our supposed recovery, we're not seeing Main Street keep up with that. The International Monetary Fund, the Federal Reserve, each of these last six or seven years, as we get halfway through the year, they go out and they revise their estimates and they say, no, we're really not going to grow at three or three and a half percent like we'd like to grow at, which would be a nice, um, you could call it robust, but it would still be a very consistent, good, healthy economy to be growing at and particularly coming out of the recession that we did where we had extremely low growth rates to, to hit three and a half percent, three and a quarter percent, even four percent for, for several years in a row would not be an overheated economy or, or would not be unexpected. Our economy and our country grew at about a historical rate of about three percent since the post-World War II period. So, so to be hitting those kind of numbers after a recession is just would be, you know, you would just assume that that would be what you would need to at least get caught up or at least get back to par. Even if we're going to be at a slower growth rate long term, you would at least still like to see a, a couple years of three and a half percent growth rate to make up for what you lost in previous years. Well, we've never hit that, even though they keep promising it. And then once again, we've, you know, this year, both the IMF, and the Federal Reserve have walked back the growth estimates and we're looking at seeing real GDP growth of somewhere around 2.5, 2.6%, something like that. We're right now in the period where we're going to start getting second quarter earnings. A couple companies have already announced, but we'll start getting much bigger announcements this week and next week. That's something you want to keep your eye on. And again, another reason why I wouldn't be surprised if we do get a bounce out of this market, because even though these growth rates aren't going to be what, what they would have been estimated or forecast at six or seven or 12 months ago, they're still going to beat estimates because those estimates have been revised down two or three times. And, and the company's always sandbagged, so they always say things are going to be worse than they really are so that it makes it easier for them to be able to come out and beat the forecasts. You know, generally, you know, you have 70, 80 percent of companies always beat the forecast. So that's how you know that they're sandbagging. Since estimates have been walked back several times, two or three times so far this year, you can expect again to see 70 or 80% of companies beating their forecasts. The media will hype that. They'll tell you how much better everything is, how the economy is growing. And the fact of the matter is that the economy is growing. Corporate earnings will grow somewhere around 6 or 7% this year. But you have to remember, at the end of last year, we were projecting at least an 11% growth in earnings. Now we're saying that, well, that's only going to be 6 or 7%. That's a significant decrease, even though they'll play that up. And I don't want to confuse people. When I talk about growth, I just mentioned two numbers. That 6 or 7% is growth of corporate earnings. That 2.5 or 2.8% that we might see as real GDP growth. That has been walked back as well. And you have to also ask yourself, how many years, how many decades can we continue to see corporate profits escalate and grow at uh, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10% when the overall general economy is only growing at 2? A lot of smoke and mirrors. There's a lot of balance sheet engineering. We're not going to go into that in this episode, but that can't continue indefinitely. I think the media will hype anything that comes out of Greece as good news. I think they're going to hype these uh, earnings as long as they look reasonable. So that's why I wouldn't be surprised at all to see a bounce in all the indexes. But I'll tell you why I remain cautious. 
The S&P 500 has been flirting and breaking its its 200-day moving average, which is very unusual for the personality of this market. It has, at the end of this week, it did recover, and it did close up above its 200-day moving average. That's a very good sign, and it is likely to you know have bounce off that 200-day moving average and keep going up. That's all in the positive. But I'll tell you the negative part of this, as I'd mentioned before in just a, a couple past episodes, I said that it didn't look like this market was necessarily going to fall apart because volume was very low. On the days that the market did fall apart and it did drop down and break below its 50-day moving average and break below its 200-day moving average, we didn't see huge significant sell-offs. It wasn't like everybody was running for the exits in a panic. Now, the corollary of that is happening now as we're seeing the market go up and break above its 200-day moving average. Well, we're seeing even less volume. We're seeing even less enthusiasm as the market increases. And this really uh, stands out to me on, on Friday, yesterday's close. The volume on Friday, despite the fact that the market was up well over 1%, I don't have the number in front of me, I think the market actually closed up something like 1.3%, which you would think would be a really big rally, particularly after all the problems we had and then the supposed good news coming out about the Chinese market and the uh, uh, the agreements that we'll see with Greece. Well, the volume was so low that day. In fact, I think it was something like only 20% of the average volume was traded on Friday. So, so basically you're saying, you know, 80% of the people weren't there. They just didn't trade. And why would they do that? Well, they were obviously skeptical of the market going up. And so again, that's why I remain very cautious. It looks like yesterday's volume, uh, Friday's volume was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of maybe the fourth lowest day that we've had all year. And, you know, previous lows, like maybe the lowest day we've had so far this year would have been like Good Friday or the uh, Good Thursday, the Thursday before Good Friday. The market would have been closed on Good Friday. I'm eyeballing this, so I may not have my numbers exactly, but but somewhere that week of of uh, Easter this year in April, that looks like that was a really low trading day. And then the only other time I see in the last uh, six months or so that maybe was that low, well, that would have been it for this year, actually. So it would have been the end of the year, the end of last year, you know, Christmas week would have been another time when we would have seen a volume about as low as it was on this Friday. Again, I'm not giving you exact numbers. I'm just kind of eyeballing a chart that I, that I pulled up really quickly here. I'm just trying to emphasize the fact that although the market has gone up significantly in these last two trading sessions, there isn't any volume there to show conviction that people are really buying into this rally. So I remain cautious. I also remain cautious because although the market has come up above its 200-day moving average, the S&P 500 is still below its 100-day moving average and below its 50-day moving average. And in particular, both the 5-day and the 10-day moving averages are also below those key 100 and 150-day uh, moving averages. I know I'm throwing out a lot of moving averages here, but just trust me on this. As I look at a chart that's very uncharacteristic for the S&P 500 over the last two years, anytime the 10-day has broken below its 50 or 100-day moving average, that was a very bad sign. It didn't happen very often. In fact, I think in the last two years, you only had that 10-day moving average drop below the 100-day moving average one time, and that would have been the near 10% correction that we saw last October. So this correction was has only been about half of what we saw last October. The market could still have more room to fall. I'm just going to be cautious. 
Now, as always with this podcast, I never offer you recommendations or advice. I simply express my opinion, and my opinion right now is coming from a very conservative standpoint. You know, hey, if you're 20 years old and you have a couple thousand dollars and you want to throw it into the S&P 500 right now to see if you can do some swing trading and catch a 3 or a 4 or 5% bounce, I wouldn't fault you for that. You're young. You, you can take the risk. Uh, it is, as I said, probably better than 60% chance of, of being able to, to go up and maybe not go on to new highs from here, but certainly to bounce back up in the range of, of over 2100, which would, you know, would put a couple three, 4% in your pocket. But at the same time, if you're 50 years old and you have, you know, your life savings, you have say $500,000 of your retirement money, I wouldn't be betting the farm on this. I'm too skeptical. I want to wait and see this market stabilize a little bit more. It just looks to me like we're at all-time highs. I base that on what I see with the technicals as well as what I see with major economies like China. We'll get to that in this episode in a little bit. I want to talk about Greece before we go into that. But the global economy is really the key right now. I want to emphasize the fact that I don't think that our economy is going to fall apart. I think the U.S. economy is doing fairly well. But it comes down to the fact that we are just, you know, the best house in a bad neighborhood. We're doing well comparatively to other countries and other economies and other markets. But we're not doing as well as we had been in previous periods of our American economy, and particularly our economy coming out of a recession and our economy when it's been juiced by so much expansion of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet and so much deficit spending. You would just expect us to be growing at a much higher rate than we are. That's what worries me. That's why I continue to believe that this market just looks like it's maybe just a little too rich, a little bit too overpriced, and it would be it would be a good idea to just wait a little bit and see what happens before you jump right back in. So there you have it. There's a market update. Let's talk about Greece. And I'm just going to say this briefly. I've talked about Greece many times. You can go back and listen to past episodes. My opinion hasn't changed on Greece. I think that Greece is only in the headlines because it gives a talking head something to talk about. It's probably a cool uh, vacation site for them to go to and, and you know broadcast live from. The beaches in Greece and the nightclubs in Greece are, are certainly a, probably a better uh, nightlife than, than going and reporting about something in a, in a dirty old contaminated um, you know town out in the middle of nowhere in China. So I understand why the media does it, but I think it's been a, a lot of hype. I'll just say this briefly again. The Greek economy is too small to make a huge difference. Now, it will make a difference. It will affect the euro. It will affect the, affect the European markets. It will have an impact on the U.S. dollar. It could have some repercussions on, on the United States stock market. I don't doubt any of that. But what I'm saying is it isn't going to really make or break us. They've made too big of a deal on it. They overshadowed the whole problems that were going on in China. If you've been you know listening to our podcast, we've been talking about it. But it's only been recently that the news have talked about all the problems in China. So forget Greece. The point I'll make, and again, if I get around in the next day or two to putting a blog post up at Investable Wealth about why I still like the dollar, that is one of the reasons. Because whether Greece is in or out of the euro, whether Greece defaults or doesn't default, the bottom line is the country of Greece, bottom line is insolvent. And so they're going to be insolvent whether they kick the can down the road a little longer and they don't let them default or whether they do. They're going to be insolvent whether they let them in the euro or whether they kick them out of the euro. So that 250 or $300 billion isn't going to be paid back anytime soon. That is going to cause the European Central Bank one way or another to print more money. That's one of the reasons I remain optimistic on the U.S. dollar. The real problem on Greece is the whole part of contagion. You just think of Greece as a sick economy. Uh, imagine that they're a, a sclerotic or a diabetic economy. 
the analogy will draw is that they're a human being with diabetes. Now, what happens when you have diabetes? Well, it's, it's mostly if you have type 2 diabetes, it's a lifestyle illness. So if you exercise and you get your diet healthy and you, you get your insulin level right, whether you do that with medication or whether you just do it with diet and exercise, as long as your insulin levels are okay and you get your behavior corrected, you're likely to be able to survive and maintain and, and live a healthy lifestyle because you can control your diabetes. Now that would likewise be with Greece. If they can get on a good program and get things together, they may be able to pull out of this. They, or they may be too, too far gone to go. We don't know. But the real problem is, remember, Greece is very small. So that's not the problem. The problem is, is if that contagion spills over to Italy or Spain or Portugal or all of Southern Europe. That's where the problem always has been. It's where the problem will be for the next 10 or 20 years just like diabetes, if they don't correct their lifestyle. Now, again, if they get their diets right, you know, just draw the analogy, right? If they get their diet right, if they maintain their insulin levels, if they get some exercise, then they can pull out of this and they can have a healthy economy, just like a human being can live with diabetes. But on the other hand, if the countries in Southern Europe follow Greece's diabetic lifestyle, and they don't get their debt under control, they don't get their public and their private uh, spending under control, they don't get more productive, they don't make some concessions on... Um, not only, you know, their pension programs and their welfare state benefits and all those things, but just even in the private sector, they have to get their productivity up to be able to compete with other countries in Europe, countries like Germany and Poland and, and the Netherlands. They're just not, the southern countries are just not as productive as the northern and central parts of Europe. And that's just in Europe. If you look at, you know, Italy's uh, productivity based on Taiwan or something, I mean, it's just in another universe. It can't even compare. So that's the problem. It's, it's the problem of, of Greeks' issues not getting corrected and then causing these other Southern European countries to carry on that lifestyle and thinking they can get away with it, right? So if we lose Greece, it's like losing a toe, a diabetic losing a toe. Now, you don't want to lose a toe, but it doesn't end your life and you can, you can have a healthy existence without a toe. But if this spills over and, and Italy and Portugal and Spain, you know, if it spills over to them, well, now it's not only your toe. Now you start losing limbs and, and diabetes affects your organs and you go blind and you see how the organism dies. That's the problem that we've always been worried about with Greece. And it's not something that's going to get solved or explode just in the next week or two or months or whatever. And so that's why I don't put a lot of credibility in what the media says about Greece right now. I think they just hype it up too much. It's going to be a problem one way or the other for the European Central Bank. But it isn't going to crash global stock markets until we see that contagion spill over, which, again, isn't going to happen tomorrow. It's going to take many more months or years or maybe even a decade to happen. Where the real problem is and where it always has been, and, and not only the problem, but the opportunity, it's in China. The Chinese market, the Indian market, together they, they have, uh, you know, 3 billion people or so in those two countries. And then if you look at the periphery countries around them, you know, more, you know, well more than half the world lives there. 75% of the world's population lives in that Asian area, you know, just a little bit to the east of China, all the way over to a little bit of the west of India. That's, that's where all the growth will come from in the future, just because that's where the largest percentage of people live and the largest percentage of people are being born. So ultimately, that's where we're going to see the growth. And the problem is, is that these emerging markets, and it's kind of funny we call them emerging markets because India and China have been around for thousands of years, but we, we continue to, to kind of look at them and call them emerging markets. They're stagnating right now. They are not and have not been growing at the rate that was forecasted 10 and 15 years ago. 
particularly going back 15 and 20 years ago. If you look at the charts that were drawn out and what was supposed to be happening with growth from these, you know, from that part of the world, it was to be significantly higher than it is right now. It was just back in maybe four or five years ago that China was growing at 12%, 14% a year. Now they're reporting that they're going to grow at 7 this year, and they're probably going to grow realistically maybe at, at 5 or 6% growth. Well, through the, like the 80s and the early part of the 90s, our country was growing at 5 and 6% growth. So that's, that's not an explosive growth rate. World growth right now will be lucky to hit 3%. Probably it'll be very much similar to the U.S. growth rate, probably more like 2.5%, 2.7%. Now that's a sustainable level of growth. So again, it's not like we're going to see a, you know, an economic collapse because the, the world isn't growing enough. We can sustain, we can have healthy economies at 25 3% world growth rates. The problem is, is that everybody has factored into their equations and into the return for investments that we were going to be seeing world growth at 7, 8, or 9, or 10%. That China and India were going to be growing at double digits for years to come. And so there's been a lot of overcapacity created to, to produce copper and iron ore and steel and lumber and all these different things, oil, petroleum. But the markets aren't growing as fast as they were projected. So now we don't need as much of those commodity products. I talked in past episodes about the 50% decline we saw last year in the price of oil. That was, that was simply because we had a, a little bit too much of an overcapacity. Supply was maybe one and a half, two percent out of balance with demand. So just that little bit more of overproduction caused the price of petroleum to drop over 50% in like eight months. That's how these small changes can have significant impacts in the world economy. That's the problem we're seeing with China right now. And in this episode, I want to focus on what I'm going to call China's three strikes. These are three major malinvestments that have occurred over the last 35 years or so because of the Chinese government intervention into the economy. Up to this point, the two strikes that they had over these last 35 years have put us in the situation that we're in right now with this overcapacity of, of commodities and raw materials. And the third strike we're going to talk about is what's going on just specifically over these last four or five months with their stock market. That's the third strike. Now, in baseball, you only get three strikes and you're out. I'm not predicting a collapse in China. We've seen the Japanese economy where they've been able to float and levitate their Bank of Japan intervention to where they have, you know, well over 200 times debt to, uh, to their GDP ratio. They've, they've done that for, you know, at least 25 years now. So I don't know how long we'll see China be able to get away with similar stunts because China has at least had the, the growth to support it. But with their most recent schemes of getting in and, and manipulating their stock market, that is definitely creating a large amount of malinvestment and is definitely a third strike. And in my opinion, that's the biggest danger that the global markets have right now. So let's go back in history and, and review a little bit about what's happening in China over the last 35 years and why I say they have three strikes against them. It wasn't until the 1970s that China came out of its self-imposed exile from the West when it shed its cultural revolutionary practices that were imposed by Mao Zedong and the Chinese communists started to experiment with participating in Western capitalism. Now, because they got started so late, they had to start at the bottom and it took many decades to build their economy and to enter into Western markets. It wasn't until about the 1980s that China started developing some basic industries things like scrap steel production and low-quality textile manufacturing. But once on course, they rapidly built their economy. They went from making cheap products like steel rebarb to consumer electronics in just, you know, a little more than a decade, maybe 15 years. 
but growth wasn't fast enough and governments and humans are always tempted to take shortcuts. And so the Chinese government tried to prop up their industrial base by either direct intervention or by encouraging investors to make malinvestments in producer-type products. These would be things like factories and also in the infrastructure that supports them. So by the time we're in the late 90s, a great deal of government money and government corruption is funneled into creating projects that aren't justified by the market. They're building bridges to nowhere. They're building factories to make products that aren't being demanded by the market. But this is ignored because the mentality of the Chinese government is that, is that if we build it, if we invest, we'll be creating jobs, we'll be employing people, and we'll dominate these, these markets that we're going after. That was strike one for the Chinese. Well, after pursuing that policy for some time, and even today we still see remnants of it, the global world market is in a manufacturing overcapacity. We have far more supply in many areas, particularly in basic industrial products, than what there's demand for. So when the Chinese government saw the diminishing returns they were getting for the malinvestments in producer products and in infrastructure, they started to shift over and tried to encourage investors and, again, even with direct government intervention, moved into developing real estate. And so starting sometime probably, I don't know, maybe it was the early 2000s, but certainly by the mid-2000s, a bubble was already starting to form in Chinese real estate. They'd already built all this infrastructure. Now they doubled down and were really focusing on building projects for, for like uh, high-scale housing projects, large retail shopping areas. Um, in fact, if, if you believe the critics, whole large cities were being built, villages and towns that were unoccupied that nobody lived in. Now, I have been to China. I attest to the fact that I did see many office buildings and many housing complexes that looked like they were vacant, looked like they were either partially constructed or just in a continual state of being constructed with no one inside them. You could see at night, you could see all these cranes and buildings and no lights on, no one living in them. I also remember being in some parts of China outside of the main cities and just seeing these uh, very luxurious, very high-end shopping malls. And you'd go inside and they would be filled with extremely expensive luxury products, high-end leather purses, Rolex watches, things like that. And literally no one around to buy them. And if you look at the outside community, no one there with any economic means to buy these products. And if you'd ask the local Chinese people what this was about, they would say, well, the tourism, this is to support tourism. The tourists are going to come. Rich people from South Korea and Taiwan are going to come here on vacation and on business and they're going to buy these products. And then as you look outside and into the community, you just see a very poor subsistence, uh, you know, rice paddy type farmland. And there might be some factories that were built there. And even though large in nature, they were operating in a very low capacity because they were part of that strike one where they were built to create products into a market that didn't exist. I can't attest to how wide scale this practice was, but I know that I saw it. And so when I read about these uninhabited ghost towns in China, for the most part, I believe they're true. And so now this malinvestment in real estate and residential housing and retail properties, that was the second strike for China. And the law of diminishing returns occurred for that a lot faster than it had when they'd been involved in the industrial development. And so it didn't take too long for the Chinese government to realize that this real estate investment wasn't paying off. And so in just recent years, the Chinese government focused on developing their financial markets and in particular developing their stock market. They have several markets across China, but the two really large ones are the Shanghai. And that exchange can be likened more to America's blue chip stocks, to our Dow Jones Industrial and, um, you know, the S&P 500, things that would be listed on the New York Stock Exchange. 
And then down in Shenzhen, they have an exchange there that focuses more on their technology sector or more on their uh, their growth or their aggressive stocks. I guess you'd, you'd make that more akin to our NASDAQ. And then their third market would be very speculative and more like our over-the-counter market. This is the extreme micro caps and the penny type stocks, the very, very speculative things. So China, like they do in all markets they enter, they're trying to mimic what they've seen in the West. So they're creating these different levels of stock markets and stock exchanges. They allow many of their large companies to be listed on American exchanges. These are very large and popular stocks in America. If you've been following the stock market in recent years, I'm sure you've heard of initial public offerings like Alibaba, Baidu, BitAuto, and China Telecom, just to name a few. These have been very popular stocks. Some of them have performed quite well. Over the last year or so, we have seen some of these companies that were accused of fraud and basically imploded. Now, I call this China Strike 3. Just like they intervened in the industrial production and in the real estate markets, right now they're either directly intervening or they're encouraging intervention by the certain policies and the easing of their regulations and interest rates to encourage the Chinese people to invest their life savings in these various stock markets that I mentioned. Well, despite the fact that there might be corruption and fraud, Chinese people have been encouraged to invest their hard-earned money in these companies. And so you wouldn't be surprised to realize that we're seeing bubbles form. So as the Chinese government encourages these malinvestments and you hear how they're trying to prop up their currency and have their currency used as more of a reserve currency and trying to have more interaction on the international standard with the pricing of things like gold. I'm sure you've heard those type things reported in the press. Well, they're trying to gain this notoriety in the financial industries by building up their stock markets. And that's one of the reasons why they're trying to encourage their citizens and small investors to take these speculative actions in their stock markets. And this has really started to pay off in the past, say, seven, eight months. The Shanghai stock market had pretty much mimicked what we'd seen in the United States in in terms of our financial crisis of 2007. That's when their market peaked out and it hit an all-time high, and then it crashed, and then it saw its low points uh, probably around 2012. Well, in November of, of last year, 2014, things started to improve, and they started to improve rapidly. In fact, from November of last year until late May or early June of this year, just a period of uh, a little more than six months, we saw the Shanghai stock market more than double. It rose up astronomically. And a lot of this had to do not only with self-induced investor enthusiasm, but as I mentioned, the encouragement from the government, as well as the direct subsidization of these small investors getting into the markets, because the Chinese government felt it was to their advantage to hype up and create this bubble, just like they had with the industrial development and with the real estate development. But for right now, it looks like the law of diminishing returns really caught up with them on this investment because those markets peaked out around mid-June. And so over the last three weeks or so, we've seen that stock market bubbles start to collapse. The Shanghai index collapsed over 30%. The Shenzhen was down about 40 And then their small speculative over-the-counter type markets. Um, reporting there is very sketchy, but probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 70% is where those stocks dropped. This is just over the period of the last three weeks or so. Now, the Chinese government did intervene, and that's why this past week you've probably heard that their market has turned around, and that's why we hear all this optimism. But the fact of the matter is, is that it's just stabilized. The Chinese stock markets have lost something in the neighborhood of probably more than $3 trillion, and this is even after the government has come in and intervened and tried to prop these up. 
to put that into perspective for you, that's about the size of a major developed economy. That's about the size of a, of a country's GDP like Britain or Germany. The third and fourth largest economies in the world are only in the neighborhood of three and a half to four trillion dollars. So for that amount of money to be wiped out in such a short period of time, that's important not only to the Chinese economy, but because of China's large impact, it affects the entire globe and could have a lot of repercussions in the U.S. as well. Look at a company like Apple. Much of Apple's sales and profits over the last 18 months have been attributed to the, to the opening of the Chinese markets to their products. Millions and millions of, of new iPhone 6s were sold into China. If the Chinese consumer, the man on the street in China, has lost over $3 trillion of his wealth, of his accumulated saved wealth, just in the past few weeks on their stock market because of speculation, how is that person going to have the ability to consume and buy more Apple products? That's the concern, and that's why you see that this is an impact to our market, and companies like Apple stock have taken a hit as well. Now, the Chinese government is not taking this sitting down. Something like 40 to 45 percent of the shares in the market uh, trading has been frozen in where they're not allowed to be traded at all. They've stopped the issuance of all new initial public offerings. They've put out policies and rules saying that anybody that owns 5% or more of a, of a company's stock is not allowed to sell for at least the next six months. They're cracking down on people that they feel are speculators or people that might be short-selling the market trying to drive down prices, and they'll bring criminal charges against those people. They've changed the rules and regulations on the large institutional purchasers like pension funds and insurance companies. They're allowing them to invest um, much higher amounts into risky things like stocks. And in fact, they're going in and they're making some of these banks and insurance companies and uh, hedge funds and mutual funds and things like that. They're making them specifically go in and buy stocks and make investments that they otherwise, that these companies otherwise wouldn't want to be making. They're doing this to try and prop up their stock market so that this bubble doesn't break further. These are the same policies that they used in their industrial development and in their infrastructure development and in the real estate deals. And while they were strikeouts there and they really didn't work in those markets, I believe they're probably going to work even less in the financial markets because these markets are so fluid, these markets are more arbitrary, and it's hard to really define a price. So the question over these coming weeks and months will be, is the Chinese government big enough to go in and intervene and prop up their market without creating some type of a bubble bursting or without creating some type of a currency crisis? I think it's unlikely, but we'll have to wait and see. I also think that even if they are able to stabilize the market, that this interaction and this malinvestment, this strike three for the Chinese, will have spillover and carryover to the overall growth of the global economy because the money printing and the intervention, not only of the Chinese government, but of the Japanese government and the European Central Bank and the American Federal Reserve and the Australians and everybody else, no matter how much these central banks print money and try and pump up and prop up the economy, we've still seen a collapse in commodity prices. And I know I keep harping on this episode after episode, but things like copper, iron ore, cement, all the basic commodity materials, even things like gold and silver, look at them. There's, these prices are still depressed. In many cases, when you get to things like copper, they're as low as they've been in the depths of the recession. They're at six-year lows. 
So you have to ask yourself, if all the malinvestments in building producer products like factories and, and bridges to nowhere and all the real estate and housing malinvestments that built homes out of lumber and steel and concrete and the copper for plumbing and wiring and all these things, if all those malinvestments and the, the strike ones and strike twos in China, if that hasn't been enough to prop up these commodity prices, then how can further malinvestments and throwing good money after bad money in the financial market how can that create prosperity? How is that going to raise the price of copper? How is that going to raise the price of iron ore? I'm very skeptical that it will be able to. So I will patiently wait and see what happens. I can't see the future. I can't predict the future. China may be able to weather this storm and, and go on and be able to make strike four and strike five and, you know, strike 15. I have no way of knowing. But I watch these numbers closely every day. These type things are the key critical indicators that I look at that determine what markets I invest in and when I choose to invest. Right now, I don't like what's happening. I think it's too uncertain. I'm going to stay half in cash and half in the U.S. dollar until I think it's appropriate to do something otherwise. Full disclosure, I do have a position where I'm shorting oil, as I've mentioned in previous episodes. That is turned around. That position is working well for me. But I do want to stress that that is a personal position. It's something that I felt was way too risky to involve my client money with. And so any money that I have dedicated to shorting oil is, is my own personal money, and it's a, a very small percentage of the overall portfolio that my firm manages. This week, I think we're going to continue to see volatility. I wouldn't be at all surprised to see the markets spike and bounce up. We do have major earnings announcements coming out. That'll be occurring not only this week, but for the next three weeks. So on any given day, you can see the market bounce up. And then if there's drama in Greece or more problems with the Chinese market, you could see those gains rapidly fall apart. So you're going to have to take it day by day. Again, I would just advise being cautious. That'll wrap things up for this episode. As always, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best of returns.